The following audio is from Overland Park Community Church. More information about OPCC can be found online at overlandpark.cc. Welcome to OPCC. Welcome to those of you joining online. It's good to have you here today and uh, have you, those of you who are online, wherever you may be, we hope you're enjoying yourself. And uh, we miss some of you. We know that are out of town, but uh, hopefully you're, you're watching online. We'll check with you to see if you did or not. Amen. Um, I, uh, I've been working on a project at the house for quite some time. I decided to uh, rip all the carpet out of my stairs and go with hardwood floors and white risers. And that's a big job, man. <laughs> that's a big job. And anyway, I may see a li- seem a little, a, little, uh, a little loopy right now, right? Uh, singing, man, I had to stop every once in a while and catch my breath. I put a coat of polyurethane on right before church, and I'm just kind of like, whoo. So uh, who knows, man, if anything strange comes out of my mouth, I need a little grace. <laughs> anyway, that has been a challenging project. One of the most difficult things about a project like that sometimes is just getting started. And then when you get started, you have to stop. There are always times you have to stop. You have to stop at the end of the day. Then you have other things you have to do. Obviously, if you're not a contractor and you don't do that for a living, you got another life that you're living and you're trying to do a contractor's job. And so there's interruptions here and there. And we've had graduation parties and um, all kinds of things going on. Joel graduates tonight and several of our other seniors graduate that's a miracle. <laughs> uh, my oldest is graduating. I've wondered uh, from time to time, uh, but uh, he made it. Uh, so we, we uh, we're still want to see the diploma. We've got the cap and gown, uh, but there have been, a, along the way, there have been a lot of things try to stop Joel David, and there's a lot of, life is like that, man. Things get thrown at us to try to stop us. Um, I, uh, in ministry, I've had things thrown at me from time to time have movement going, and all of a sudden, man, just bam, out of nowhere, some conflict will rise up. And I remember the first time I led a, um, a church, you know, I was 29 years old, turned 30 fairly quick after that. And um, that first year, man, it just, the church just started moving and growing. And, and we started somewhere there in the year or so within that, we started talking about raising money. And, and we, you know, you have these business meetings, this very congregationally led church, and I had all my stuff, you know, ready for the presentation, and, and I got up and made the presentation, and I'm like, man, I was really excited, and immediately a guy stands up and says, I'm against it. I'm like, what? And I, like, it just caught me out of nowhere, and I was like, man, that, that was something trying to come against what the Lord was doing. We had to press through that. Obviously, we um, that voice was small within the body, and, and we moved forward, and, and we, there's just things like that that have happened. I, I had a, a very, um, uh, what I would call a, a violent spiritual attack on my ministry uh, several years ago, and I really believe it was designed to take me out of ministry, <clears throat> and it was, it was a challenging time for Abby and I to, to walk through that experience, and um, we walked through it, man, and pushed through and the Lord, he used it, <clears throat> and, you know, we just kept moving, kept moving forward. And there are things in life like that all the time happening to us, okay, is that we're, we're trying to move forward in the kingdom, and sometimes it might feel like when, 
When you become a Christian, you hear the gospel, and the gospel is good news, that God wants to forgive you of your sins. He made a way to do that. And you're like, say yes to Jesus. And then all of a sudden, man, you feel this weight lifted off of your shoulders. And you're like, man, this is awesome. And then time goes on, and that wanes a little bit, and you experience some kind of force against you. And it gets a little more difficult, and you're wondering what's going on. Well, it's opposition to the kingdom. And so when we come into the kingdom, it feels like in the beginning, man, everything is going to be incredible from here on out. And I believe it is. I believe even in those moments of opposition and trial, um, they can can make you feel like you want to give up. But as you press through them, the Lord shows up there, and we grow the, the most in those experiences. And then we come out of them, and we see, man, it was an amazing experience. But... It's not always peachy, right? In the kingdom, uh, the scripture talks about it as warfare. And so sometimes we think that when we come into the kingdom, it's a playground. It's not. It's a battleground. And a battleground always has blood to shed on it. There's always sacrifice. There's always times that you're going without in order that you can win the battle. Sometimes when we think of that metaphor, you go without food. You go without sleep. You go without um, emotional needs met sometimes. That all happens in a war. And the spiritual war is no different. We go without some of these things. And there's this enemy, this opposition that's coming against us that's often trying to keep us from getting movement. And that was the case in the early church. And so the book of Revelation, Revelation means apocalypse, is a very optimistic message to the church. Now, apocalypse doesn't sound optimistic because we think of it as doomsday, but that's not what it is. It's It's a restoration of all things. The Lord will come back and he will restore everything back to the way he intended it. And so apocalypse is an optimistic vision of what God is going to do to work out in human events his plan and this climactic event that we're all headed toward. Well, the church faced a lot of opposition in its infancy. Like when it came out of the ground, there was opposition everywhere. And so John, basically, he was trying, the, the enemy tried to stop John. And he's on an island, isolated in a prison camp, and he is visited by Jesus and given the vision of revelation. And it is a message to keep not only him encouraged, but it is a message to be sent to the church and circulated through all the churches, and it's to keep the church encouraged. And so within the book of Revelation, when we get to the first uh, couple of chapters, we'll be in chapter 2, verse 8 and following today, we have these seven letters that are written to the churches. Last week we looked at the first one, and today we look at the second one that is written to the church at Smyrna. And so again, it doesn't just apply for Smyrna. He just is addressing an issue that is going on with each of the churches. Now, interestingly, in Smyrna, he doesn't, um, there's not a, you know, we talked about last week, that sandwich approach. He tells them what they're doing right, what they're doing wrong, then what they're doing right again. Well, this one it just, just talks, he doesn't really give them a, a reproving of any sort in the letter to the church of Smyrna. And so we're going to unpack this letter and, and learn what the Lord was saying to this uh, to this, uh, the, the Christians who lived in this city, this ancient city called Smyrna. It was an incredible city. It still is to this day. It is in Turkey. 
It has a population of over 200,000 people. It's changed a lot geographically. It used to be to where the sea sort of went in around, and it was kind of like a harbor and um, a very important and strategically located place, but it, a lot of it has been filled in over the years by silt and the, the way the water ran off of the mountains, and, and it was located, like it was kind of built up on a hill, and it had these real incredible buildings that they had uh, uh, built, and they called it like the crown of Smyrna. And so as you came around the corner off of uh, the sea, then you would see this city. And it was just a beautiful place. They, they were known for keeping it beautiful. And their architecture and the things that they did, um, it, it was sort of like Overland Park. Excellence, like, by design. Is that, what is, that, is that what it is, Dan? I know you work for Olathe, but you should know this. Uh, so, so anyway, uh, so they, like Overland Park, you know when you get back to Overland Park. You, you know, you get out of, you go on vacation somewhere, we go back home, and this is, this is so snobby, but I can't help it. I am what I am. <laughs> You're gone for a while after you live here, and like you start missing the place. Because everything, seems like everything is green and manicured very well. There's not, you know, the signs, they don't let you have these giant signs and it's just, it's just a really cool city to live in, um, Overland Park. It's really spoiled. Everything's close. Man, back in Oklahoma, you need to go to some place. You had to drive 30 minutes where I live to get to anything. Here, you have to drive five minutes, and everything's there, right? And so star, there's a Starbucks every three blocks in Overland Park. <laughs> and so when you get back home, man, you know. You know you're like, oh, yeah, I'm back home. Everything. Uh, is nice, and, and so it's really a privilege to live here, but this city was like that, man. They, they were proud of their city and who they were and the image they portrayed to everyone else, and at the time Jesus sent this message to the church, it was also a wicked city, and it was known for its opposition to Christianity and the gospel. Like, it was known for that, and there were some reasons that um, led into that, First of all, it was famous for this golden street. This is crazy, right? It had a golden street that was anchored on one end by the temple of Zeus and anchored on the other end by the uh, temple of Sybil. And in between those two temples on this golden street, there was a temple to Apollo, Asclepius, and Aphrodite. It was a very religious city, Right? And so in AD 23, Smyrna is really interesting because they, they had a special place in the heart of Rome because they came to the aid of Rome before Rome was a superpower. So as Rome was on the way up, Smyrna was a city that recognized something and they partnered with them and gave them assistance. And so they always had a special place in the heart of Rome. And so in AD 23, when Rome was a superpower, it beat out 11 other, other cities for the privilege to be the chief capital or center for emperor, emperor worship. Remember, we talked about there was emperor worship, and, and um, you had to go in once a year, and this is how Rome would control uh, cities that it conquered. It would say, you could have any religion that you want, but once a year you have to go in, and you have to burn a pinch of incense, and you have to proclaim that Caesar is Lord. And we know that um, during this period of time, the emperor was very evil, and he proclaimed himself a god. And so they were the center of that emperor worship. 
And because of that, it was dangerous to be a Christian there. You might live out in one of the other cities, and you might be able to avoid this whole Pax Romana, but not in the capital, man. They were serious about it, and they wanted to know that everyone was participating in it because it was sort of something they competed for to win the right to become the city to be the center of that worship. And so Christians would not do this, they, and they were persecuted for it. Sometimes they were killed for it. Sometimes they were um, sewn up in animal skins and thrown to lions where the crowd cheered as they were eaten. Uh, they were sewn up in other things and used, uh, <clears throat> sewn up, and they would take shirts, and they would dip the shirts or the clothing in wax and get them like where it was saturated in wax, and then they would put it on the Christians and they would elevate them on poles and burn them at night to light the streets. And sometimes it wasn't as violent as that. Sometimes it would be as uh, you couldn't do business. There were sanctions against you as a Christian because you would not observe the Pax Romana. And so they were, people wouldn't do business with you. And so uh, just imagine how difficult that would be. You need some groceries for your family. And Price Chopper's like, did you do the Pax Romana? You're like, no, I'm a, I'm a Christian. See ya. And so they were despised, man. They were despised by everyone around them. And, and so the refusal to do this could cost you your life, and it's against this backdrop. And so like we, we think, well, I had a tough week last week. <laughs> I don't know, right? When we, when we learn what the infant church went through and the different periods of persecution that the church has experienced, what's, what's really crazy is, it's during those times that the church has grown the most. It's sort of like for a believer. When you go through those challenging times, it seems to be when you grow the most as a believer. And for the church, when it goes through these challenging times, it seems to flourish. And so we look ahead and go, man, it seems like we're facing oppression here in America toward believers. It's not like it used to be, man. It, it isn't like it used to be. We certainly are nowhere near what the level of persecution that I'm talking about. Uh, but m if it'll turn our country around spiritually, so be it. Like the church needs movement. And I'm thankful our church is getting movement and we see people um, experiencing transformation. But, but we look at this man and we go, wow, it's th these are tough times for believers. And against this backdrop, Jesus shows up on the island of Patmos in his resurrected form and he gives John the apostle uh, a vision. And this is how it starts. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, right? These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. The first thing Jesus says is that he's unstoppable, all right? Because it felt like everything was stopping the movement of the church. And Jesus wants to remind the Christians at Smyrna, I am unstoppable. And he starts by reminding them and us that he is in control. He is in control of everything. Even when it feels like he is not in control, he is. Even when it feels like um, he's not moving, like we, we know we sing about, he's, he's still there. Like he's in control of everything that is going on in and around and through us. And it's a message of, of encouragement. I, I was here before it started. I'll be here when it's over. I'm unstoppable. Don't forget, guys, that they put me on a cross of Calvary, and I came back to life. I love that song. Sean's going to teach it to us or lead us in it soon. There ain't no grave going to hold me down. When I hear that trumpet sound, 
I'm going to rise up out of the ground. There ain't no grave going to hold me down. I kind of want to sing it for y'all, but I'm not going to. <laughs> I said, man, that, that, that song right there, when you sing that one, boy, that, uh, bro, that's a shouting song. You know what I mean? That one will get you fired up. And so, like, man, we, Jesus is saying to them, there's no grave going to hold me down. And if you're mine, there's no grave going to hold you down. You're, you're, you're unstoppable in this, is what he's saying to the church. And so they tried to stop me, and they'll try to stop you. But if you have me, you have victory. You are unstoppable, church. And so as you walk through life, and, and you get a hiccup here and there, and you're trying to do things for the kingdom, and it feels like there are, uh, there's opposition, just remember, they tried to stop Jesus. Every time you drive by a church and you see a church, a Christian church, remember, they tried to stop that church. They tried to stop the spread of Christianity early on in its infancy, and it just kept growing and growing and growing, and it continues to grow and grow and grow. They'll try to stop this church. The enemy will try to stop this church. He will use things to try to stop the advancement of the kingdom. And the more momentum we get, the more strategic he will become and more concerned he will be about this church. But as we continue to stay focused on Jesus teaching his word, we will recognize that we are more than conquerors because greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. We are unstoppable. And I'm encouraged by that. And that's what John was receiving from Christ and was just to say to Smyrna. And so as you walk through next week, man, and you get a little bad news, something happens here or something happens there and you're shook up of it a little bit, just stop for a moment and think that, hey, man, who do I belong to? Like, who is my father? That's why we talk so much about the Lord being our father. He's our father, which art in heaven, hallowed be his name. His kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's nothing can stop me. He owns me. And when I live that way, there's a place of freedom that when I first face these unstoppable um, experiences, I'm able to move through them knowing that he already is on the other side of them. One of my favorite things to pray in the morning um, as I'm sitting with the Lord and talking to him is, Lord, you know everything about this day. I don't even know where I'm going to go for sure. I don't know where I'm going to be. I don't know who I'm going to interact with. I don't know who I'm supposed to interact with. But you know, and so, Lord, my prayer is that I would have eyes to see and walk in the places that you would have me to go, and that you would help me, Lord, along the way to hear your voice so that I know that I am walking in relationship with the people that I'm to walk in relationship with today, that I'm to smile at the people that I'm to smile at today, that I'm to give a call to someone that you want me to call today, that I would just be yours. Man, it is such a wonderful thing to pray that way and to know that the Lord is already at the end of the day, man. He's already at the end. And so we don't need to be discouraged by the present because he is, uh, he says, I, uh, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I, I am uh, Jesus who was, who is, and who is to come, right? Like, so the, as we look at Revelation and we think about the apocalypse, it's good news, man. He is in control. They tried to stop him. They couldn't. And so he goes on in verse 9, and he says, I know your afflictions, and your poverty, yet you are rich. This word afflictions, I believe, is the Greek word thalipsis, and it means like the crushing, the pressing, like the, the, what happens when you make wine and you crush the grapes. He says, I know, you guys. I know your affliction. I know how poor you are. I know that, but you're rich. And it begs the question, if this was a wealthy city, why were they so poor? And as I alluded to, they couldn't do business. 
This is why you read in the book of Acts that, man, they, th- this brother sold a piece of land and gave it for the needs of the church. It wasn't because they were becoming this sort of uh, little like society, and that's what we're all supposed to do. There was a genuine need among the brothers and sisters in Christ. There wasn't, like the one day there wasn't a church, the next day there was a church. The Jews hated them. The people who were not, everybody despised the Christians in the beginning. Everyone. And so they had to take care of each other. And that's why they were poor is because the economy wasn't supporting them because it was anti-Christian. Now, interestingly, just as we think about unstoppable, it's not too long from the writing of this that Rome becomes a Christian nation. Isn't that amazing? The thing about in the beginning, Rome was doing everything that it could to stop Christianity, and then it flips and does a 180. And so their affliction for their faith included being robbed sometimes, like they would rob Christians, if the Christian wanted to go to the authorities to get help, the authorities wouldn't help them. You want to talk about an unjust society, we talk about all of the injustices of our day within the world that we live in. Man, this was, this was unjust. Like they, and they had to live in that time, man, when people would abuse them and there was no one who would come to their aid because everybody hated them. And, and so they were poor. And... Christ was aware of their challenges. And what's that tell us? He's aware of ours too. He, he knows everything that we're facing. He knows when we face financial hardship. He knows when we face um, hardship and struggle with our health. He knows when relationally we're struggling with the people we're doing life with. He knows about all of those things. He says, man, I know your afflictions. I know when you are afflicted, especially I know when you are afflicted because you are trying to follow me. I know when you make a right decision because you believe in me and, and based on your business practices at work or the company that you own, I know that you're making those decisions because you believe in me and there's another company that's not making the same decisions and they're going to get the work that you're not receiving. Jesus says, I know that. I know that about you. And so like, we have to understand these are real things that happen to us from time to time. Sometimes we will suffer for doing what is right. And, and the Lord tells, Peter says, man, um, I think Jesus even said, like, blessed are you when you suffer for doing what is right. Like, what's the big deal for suffering when you do what is wrong, but when you suffer for what, when you're doing what is right, man, that is a big deal in the kingdom. And so like, we, we, the, we look at this and we say, man, nobody would love these people. The, the, everybody was against them. The, even their home, like they were Jewish people, and, and because they believed that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, all of the Jewish people that didn't believe Jesus was the Jewish Messiah turned their backs on them. Like, this is why Jesus says, if you don't love me more than you do your mother, your father, your sister, and brother, you cannot be my disciple. Why did Jesus say that? Because they would be put out of fellowship. And their parents would say, if you're going to follow that Jesus, dude, you can't be in our family anymore. And Jesus said, you got to make a decision. Are you going to follow me or are you going to stay with your family? Now, the hope is that we never have to make that decision. And thankfully, um, we don't in, in, in the society we live in for the most part. But that's the world they lived in. Everybody hated them. Even their own people hated them because they believed in Jesus and they, first, they suffered this persecution. But get this, even in the midst of suffering all that persecution, they loved their enemies. 
And so the people that would, like the police officer in that day, that they would go to and say that I got robbed, who wouldn't help them, instead of saying, you sorry, they loved the guy. Because why? Because Jesus said, blessed are you when you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And so they were known by the love that they had for one another. And that's what changed the early, um, uh, the, the world in this uh, early church is men, they looked at the Christians and they were known for the love that they had for one another. So the only ones that would love with them was each other and then they loved the people that hated them. Now, what would the world be like? What would your life be like if you started loving the people that hated you? It would be drastically different if you are in a situation right now where you retaliate instead of love. And so like, man, we look at that and we go, so Jesus says this to them. Remember your wealth. Well, what is their wealth? It was that very thing right there. It was spiritual wealth. It wasn't that, that, that they, had, they, they didn't have any material wealth, they had spiritual wealth, and he's reminding them of that. Regardless of what life takes from you, it can never take me. You have me, and that's what binds you together. That's what makes you the family of God. That's what makes you brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what gives you spiritual family that you take care of one another. That's what makes you the kind of person who loves your enemies. Like oftentimes... Um, we, look, we read the passage, Jesus is teaching the Sermon on the Mount. Hey, you, guys, you guys been watching The Chosen? Raise your hand if you know about The Chosen. Okay, that's pretty good. The rest of you, you need to, like, you need to download. This is a good series, all right? Very well done. They got an app. You can watch it. Binge watch it. Get caught up. But I think tonight um, a, a new episode comes out, and, and Jesus tells John the Baptist, I saw a preview. He says, I've been working on a sermon. And it's the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says in, in that sermon, he says, when, you're, when your enemy slaps you in the face, turn the other cheek and let him slap that one also. And we're like, what? Okay, so is Jesus literally saying that every time somebody slaps us in the face, we got to turn our face like that? No, he, that's not the point he's making because he also says that it, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, all right? And I can tell all of, all of you guys got your right hands for the most part, right? So you didn't follow that 100%. He's saying, man, I'm, what I'm, what's going to happen is I'm going to change you into the, the type of people that if your enemy slaps you in the face, you want to turn the other cheek to and let him slap that too, instead of immediately wanting to attack him. And that's what they were known for. He says, remember that wealth you have. Remember that I have transformed you into a new creature. You're not the same as you used to be. The old man is dead. The new man has come. The spirit of God dwells in you, and you walk in the power and authority of me. And I have shifted you. He says, remember that. And sometimes I have to be reminded of that, man. Sometimes I have to be reminded when, uh, you know, I can't do for my kids all that I want to do for them. I can't give them... <clears throat> Everything that I'd like to give them, even if I could, I wouldn't give you, I wouldn't give you everything, Faith. Like, yeah, yeah, like, I wouldn't do that. But, you know, it's just a struggle sometimes. I can't do as much for them as I'd like to do. And I have to be reminded, remember your wealth, Jimmy. It's not about this side of eternity. It's about the other side of eternity. And, and, and think of how valuable what you possess is that, that is incomparable to riches on this, like, the economy can give you. Like, there's no amount of physical wealth that is as valuable as what the truth that has happened on the inside of me is. 
And so like that, man, the, when we go through difficult times, we go through challenging things, the Lord says to us, remember that. Remember that. Remember the wealth that you have within because of what I've done in you. And then he goes on, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of a synagogue of Satan. Man, this is strong. The synagogue of Satan were Jews who were serving Satan's purposes instead of God's. I think there have been many throughout history who have tried to use this as a means for, or justification for anti-Semitism, but it's not saying that Jewish people are of the synagogue of Satan. It's saying that the synagogue of Satan were Jews who are serving Satan's purpose. And so the, the people, they started to serve the purposes of the enemy. And, he, and, and the Lord identifies that as the synagogue of Satan. These are his chosen people that were in religious authority that were leading the people of astray that he's identifying here. And in saying this, Jesus is teaching us that my heart is an instrument. And my heart is an instrument. We are not immune from this statement right here. You're not immune from being a member of the synagogue of Satan. These are strong words that come to us flying at us. And he says, man, they're, they're functioning According to the wrong synagogue, the heart, of an uh, the heart of man is an instrument to be played, and it can be played by three different musicians. The first one is you. You can play your own heart. You can make your own desires, and you can try to fulfill your own desires. You can choose to do what you want to do and ignore God completely. The second one is the devil himself, like the satanic enemy that we face and the demonic legions that are in control of this world. You see, you really believe in demons, Jimmy? Absolutely I do, as much as I believe in Jesus. Why do you believe in that? Because the Scripture teaches me, and I can look at the world and see how lost and broken people are. You want to, like, like you look at things you can't understand and wonder why a guy would murder other people and put them in a pail and eat some of them and think that there's not a demonic evil spirit functioning in our realm? Look at how uh, the hold of drug addiction on our society. Look no further than abortion itself and think that there's not, there's not a spiritual force at work. To look at, look at how entertainment thinks that in order to entertain people, you have to put filth on the screen. Why do they think that? Like I'm entertained by many things that, that don't have filth. And the greatest movies ever is Dances with Wolves, Amen. Right, and so, and so, like we look at this, and we go, man, like there, there's, there's, there's a, there's a world, like the, the world system. The scripture says that the, that the world itself, right now, that the prince of the power of the air, like the, he's in control of the world. We said we might seem that he's got the whole world in his hands, but right now that world is controlled by Satan and his legions. It's a world system. It is the cosmos. You say, wait a minute, what, what, how can you say that? Because Jesus is coming to claim the world for himself. He came the first time to save the world. When he comes the second time, he's going to claim the world that he created. That's what this whole thing is about. It's a cosmic battle of the forces of good and evil of which we have been created a little bit lower than the angels placed in this place that was formless and void where the devil was already cast to so that God could show the devil and all of his legions what he could do through a lesser being than himself if that being would submit himself to his will. And so as we submit to the will of God, we bring glory to God and we take it away from the enemy and the enemy is constantly trying to take away the glory of God. That's what this whole thing is about. 
And so right now we're in this phase of salvation where people are coming into the body of Christ, the church. And all those, that's why it says that, that God would, would, that God would all men were saved and none would perish. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so we work and we go out therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit so that when Jesus returns in the apocalypse, the revelation, and the second coming of Christ, and he returns to the planet to claim it for himself, we are a part of the body and bride of Christ. That's what this whole thing is about, man. And so he's like saying, you not understand your heart is an instrument. It can be played by you and it can be played by the enemy. And when you get you and the enemy on the same page, you got some bad music, right? It's, it's, just, it's not the way it's supposed to sound. And then the third thing is it can be, it can be played by Jesus himself. And that's whenever you come to a place in your life where you lay your life down and you say, I'm ready for Christ to be my maestro. I'm ready for him to be the one who plays the strings of my heart and leads me throughout this journey of life. So you have to ask yourself, who is playing lead in your life? And this is reality for us all. Like Just because you come to church and just because you believe in Jesus doesn't mean that Jesus is playing lead in your life. You say, how do I know that Jesus is playing lead in my life, you won't be asking that question. That's how you know. If you're wondering right now, you're probably playing lead. And so you've got to die to what? Yourself. It says, if you want to be my disciple, you must die to yourself, take up your cross, die to yourself, and follow me daily. Let me play lead in your life. And as as he begins to play lead, then it means that sometimes you have to um, walk away from certain things in your life. Sometimes you have to step into things that you don't want to do that you're afraid and nervous about. And so what does he say? He says, verse 10, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. And so our last takeaway is be faithful, all right? And he says the devil will test you. The days that he mentions there are 10. Now, we've talked about how in apocalyptic literature, there's a lot of symbology. So this number 10 right here means a season. There is a season of testing. And I think we often go through um, seasons of testing in our journeys. And sometimes the season is a, a little bit more difficult than at others, but I think always there's testing that is going on. And the enemy, sometimes I think, um, I think the Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians, he talks about the day of evil, like the day that hell is unleashed on you. Maybe that's the season that is being identified, that, that sometimes there is, there's a season of testing. And he says this specifically to the uh, Christians in Smyrna. He's like, you're going to go through a season of persecution. Now, now take in mind, the backdrop is there, some of them are dying for believing in, in Jesus and saying no to proclaiming Caesar as Lord. And so some of them are doing that. He says, like, do, do not be afraid, he says. You're about to suffer. It's about to get more intense, he says. And, and, and really, when you read that, as he talks about this affliction and testing and suffering, the Greek is actually behind this, do not be afraid, would be translated, stop it. They were afraid, and Jesus is saying, stop it. So like, can you see, like, the resurrected Christ 
He tells them, man, I was dead. Like, did you see me being afraid as I went to the cross? Did you see me being afraid? I trusted the Father, and I was trying to show you how to live. And so what's Jesus saying is in this, he's saying to them, stop it. You are unstoppable. And he's trying to remind them of their wealth. He's trying to remind them of all of the things that have happened in their lives and the transformation that is going on. And he says in verse 11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. What in the world is the second death? Well, the first death is when you are laid to rest and your soul leaves this body. That's the first death. The second death is at the end of time of this climactic event, and we'll be studying this. We won't get into this really good stuff until um, right around July. It's going to take us a few weeks to get through these letters. Now, I've never preached through it, but it's going to be good, bro. <laughs> so so uh, whenever, whenever we, uh, we die, it's the first death, Okay? Whenever Jesus returns, all humanity, at the end of the age, all of humanity is resurrected. Those who believe are resurrected to life, and those who do not believe are resurrected to the second death. What is that death? Is it annihilation? No. It's eternal death. It's death over and over, and over, and over, and over. It's separation from God and all of his grace. There's not a human being on the face of the planet that has ever walked the planet who has been separated from God's grace. You say, what do you mean? Well, when the sun shines on you, you experience the grace of God. When you draw a breath of air, you experience the grace of God. There's coming a time on the second death that those who have not believed in Christ and been saved, they are separated from the grace of God. It is eternal separation from God. This is why there is, it's necessary for there to be two births. This is why Jesus told Nicodemus, if you uh, want to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. You had a first birth, you need a second birth. The only way you can escape the second death is a second birth. And that's why we teach about salvation all the time. And I end every sermon and say, if you don't know Jesus, man, you need to give your life to Jesus. You need to experience a second birth so that the Spirit of God indwells in you and you no longer walk in the normal uh, experience that you did before. You're transformed into a new creation, and now you have the power and authority of the Spirit living inside of you, and you are prepared for the second death. And that's why you can read the apocalypse, and it's good news, not bad news. If you've never had the second birth, then the apocalypse is bad news. If you've had the second birth, it's good news. And that's why he's saying to them, he's like, we've got to remember these things. And even if you die, even if they put one of those wax shirts on you and burn you on the street tonight, brothers and sisters of Smyrna, remember they did me too, and I'm still walking around. If they, if they sew you up in a lamb's skin and throw you out there, do not be afraid. You are unstoppable. I was dead and now I'm alive and you'll be dead and then you'll be alive. Just like the thief on the cross when I told him today, he is with me in paradise. So will you be. You're unstoppable. That's what he's saying to us as a church. And so the church 
of Smyrna was unstoppable. A third of the 200,000 people who live there today are Christians. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Like when the church started, they were trying to kill all the Christians, and now we're two millennia away, and out of the 200,000 people that reside there, a third of them are Christians. Have ears to hear. Don't be a spiritual weenie. Like listen to that, man. Receive it and decide to be unstoppable. Let Jesus strum on the strings of your heart and know that the big idea today is I'm unstoppable. Now, as we land this plane, I'm going to tell you a story. It says to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right. Now, the word angel is messenger, and it can be interpreted a bishop, and in this context of these seven letters, most theologians believe this is to that pastor, to that bishop, right. Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna. He was the 12th martyr of it too. He was known for pastoring that church, and they were trying to arrest him. And he was hiding, and a child stumbled upon him and gave him up. And the guards came and arrested him, and he knew what his fate was going to be. And he requested of the guards that he might spend an hour in prayer. He prayed so fervently that legend has it that the guards arrested, that arrested him like had remorse and repented that they were responsible for arresting Polycarp. They took him out to burn him at the stake. And normally they would nail the person to the stake on top of the wood in order to keep them there, but they only tied him and he said he would be fine, that he was immovable. And they asked him one more time, just recant and, and, and say that you do not believe in Jesus. And Polycarp says, 86 years have I served Christ and he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And so they lit him on fire. And as he burned, <laughs> history records that the flames formed an arc around him and didn't touch his body. And the executioner was ordered to thrust a spear through his side. And so they thrust the spear through his side. And when they pulled it out, so much blood flowed from his body that it extinguished the flames. The Christians wanted to take his body and bury it. They were denied and they said, burn him. They lit him on fire and they burned him at the stake. And later they were able to get what of his body they could and give him a proper interment. But the point is, is that Polycarp knew he was unstoppable. Do you know that? <laughs> like, do you know that following Jesus, you're unstoppable? They can't take Jesus from you. No one can take Jesus from you. Someone could take your job from you. So, someone could take your life from you. Someone could take your possessions from you. 
Someone can even take your children from you. I can abduct them. But they can't take Jesus from you. You're unstoppable. And so as you go through life, man, and you feel like, man, all these kids I've got, they're driving me crazy. Just take a breath and say, I'm unstoppable. When you go through a heavy work week and it feels like it's, everything is getting dumped on you and you're like, I don't know if I can get this done, just say, I'm unstoppable. When you go to the doctor and you find out you've got some tests going on and they don't know what's going on with you and you may have cancer, just say, I'm unstoppable. When you have another birthday roll around and you're 87 years old and you start to think, man, I may not make it another year, just say, I'm unstoppable. <laughs> because that's what you are, friend. If you've experienced the second birth, the second death has no hold on you. And to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I am unstoppable. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Just a time of reflection to sit in this moment and receive this truth. Maybe for some of you here, it would be a time to experience the second birth. And really, that is just a laying down of your life. Nobody can lay your life down on the altar of sacrifice but you. It is yours. And so maybe today for you, it is like, I need to lay my life down and receive Jesus. I've never done that. I grew up in church. I was baptized when I was a kid. I thought I was a follower of Jesus, but I don't think I am because I've never laid my life down. Nobody can lay your life down but you. And so when we say experience the second birth, it is Christ inviting you to be a part of the kingdom and you saying yes to Jesus and laying your life down. So maybe you just pray that way right now. Maybe you're here today and you say, you know what, I've laid my life down, but I've been playing the strums or the strings of my heart. The last year, I've, just, I've been playing more and more radically and passionately, and Jesus, you can't even hear him in my life. Like I am so all over the strings of my life, that the music is not good. And John, the apostle who gives us this letter, this revelation, he also writes in his epistle, if we confess our sins, then he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So maybe for you, today is just a confession of saying, Lord, I'm sorry for, I'm I'm sorry for playing lead in my life, and I'm ready for you to play lead again. And, and then... There may be some of you here just be like, you know what? I'm going through a tough time, and this is exactly what I needed to hear. And, and, and you just need to spend a little time right now talking to the Lord and saying, thank you, Jesus, for speaking to me directly about my situation today. Let us sit in this moment. If you make a decision, like an unstoppable person won't keep their mouth closed about the decision they make. Every week I sort of stand out back to give you an opportunity if you make a decision to let me know. Because I want to know. I want to celebrate with you. And so you could do that with a connection card. You could do it with an email. But make sure you tell somebody about what the Lord has done in your life. Those of you online, I would say the same thing to you. Like, Like listen and obey. And if you make a decision, communicate with someone, the decision that you've made. I'm going to pray us out, turn it over to Sean for just a a little time of worship to sit in this moment. Heavenly Father, 
We thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for those, Lord, who may be laying their lives down even in this moment. We pray that you would give them courage to share the good news of what has happened. And we pray, Holy Spirit, as a ministry, that we would always hold on to this truth that we are unstoppable and that you would move in our community through us. We don't deserve it, Lord, but we desire it. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Overland Park Community Church in Overland Park, Kansas. For more information, visit us online at overlandpark.cc.